Well, good afternoon. Welcome to Queens, uh, New York City. Here we are. Uh, my name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life Fellowship Church, and it's really a thrill and a joy that you are with us for our Gospel and Race Conference. This is actually the fourth uh, time that we've put this event on in this kind of setting, in this kind of uh, way, and I'm just uh, thrilled to see what the Lord is going to do over the next couple of days. Every time we've gathered in this space uh, to talk about the gospel, to talk about the racial realities that exist in our country and in the world, uh, I believe God has met us in, in really uh, powerful, uh, profound ways. Uh, for those of you who are new to our building, uh, this is quite a historic building. It's a landmark building, one of the more uh, famous buildings in Queens. And uh, we, had, we started renting this building in 1997 as a church. Uh, we purchased it in 2003. And uh, we've been here trying to make all kinds of renovations and such over the past uh, 16 years. But this place has not just a lot of character, a lot of history as well. In this room right here, if you go on YouTube, you'll see there's some ECW, WWF matches that were taking place here, wrestling ring right in the center of this sanctuary. Uh, crowds, thousands, over a thousand people in this room here. And so just, just, just uh, type in ECW and Elks Lodge and you'll see all the crazy wrestling that took place in here. We repurposed it and so now we're wrestling with powers and principalities. And so, um, and so here we are. In addition to that, in our uh, lower level, we have the longest bar in Queens. The longest bar in Queens, our middle schoolers meet there. And... <laughs> Uh, and A Beautiful Mind was filmed down there with Russell Crowe down in our lower level. There was a bar scene in A Beautiful Mind. And so another thing you can just do, Google A Beautiful Mind bar scene, and uh, you'll see uh, our, our bar downstairs. And uh, a last kind of uh, really cool thing about this church, if you ever watched Coming to America, uh, and Eddie Murphy came to, to Queens Boulevard to find the queen, uh, while he is working at McDowell's, McDowell was about two blocks away from here on the other side of Queens Boulevard. It was a Wendy's uh, until uh, a couple of years ago where they tore it down uh, to build some residential buildings over there. But in one of the scenes where Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall are cleaning out the front, our building is right in the, right in the shot in the background. And so that is our claim to fame. We're in Coming to America. And uh, part two's coming out. And so I've already reached out to Eddie. And uh, so hopefully... Uh, will we'll come out again. I wanted to let you know we're going to have a lot of wonderful uh, truths that you're going to hear, wonderful perspectives. And over the course of the next few days, we have a hashtag. It's just hashtag gospel and race 19. And so if you're on any kind of social media and you want to capture some of the highlights uh, that's taking place uh, throughout our gatherings, uh, feel free to, to use that hashtag in whatever context, gospel and race, A-N-D and race uh, 19. Uh, lastly, and just in terms of some housekeeping uh, stuff here, uh, on this level we have a men's room and a women's room. On the mezzanine level, there's another men's room, and then downstairs there's uh, some other uh, restrooms. And so for those of you who need to step out, feel free uh, to do so. Now, our, when we've been doing this event for the past number of years, and I personally have had a number of goals for our time. And uh, I wanted to create a really meaningful space uh, to dialogue to enter into conversation, to hear various perspectives as it pertains to the often polarizing and divisive reality of race, particularly in this country. 
I wanted to have a space where we could provide helpful tools to navigate the challenges beyond just inspiration, beyond just good theology here and there, but some really practical handles for us to take back to our respective communities uh, and in our own lives. To offer a biblical framework of justice, a biblical framework of the power of the reconciling God that we worship. And really, not just for us to be impacted individually, but for us to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, go back to our respective communities and begin to bear witness to the inbreaking kingdom of God that is in our midst. And so at New Life Fellowship, we've been at this for over 30 years. Our church started in 1987. And uh, we purposefully, and you'll hear that a little later, uh, about why we purposefully stood in this community over three decades. Uh, National Geographic has uh, pinpointed this neighborhood at one point, it might have changed since this research came out, as the most diverse zip code in the world. We have uh, 75 nations represented in our church, 123 languages spoken at the nearby uh, hospital. If you want to take out $20 at the local Chase Bank down the block, there's about 20 options before you. And so it is a very complicated existence that we live in. And beyond just the complexity and the diversity, what we have found to be true is that whatever tensions exist in our world internationally find its way into our community as well. And so whenever natural disasters hit, whether it's in the Philippines, whether it's in Indonesia, we feel it here. Where there's tensions that exist in our country and on the news, we feel it here. We have folks who voted for Donald Trump and folks who voted for Hillary Clinton right in here. We have Black Lives Matter activists and we have Blue Lives Matter congregants in this space here. And so whenever the World Cup comes around, lots of drama in the church here. Um, Whenever the Olympics come around, you know, it's just like problems everywhere. You know, Korea beat Germany, the Germans weren't praying with the Koreans. And so, uh, and so what a mess. And yet, what a beautiful sign of the kingdom of God breaking through in our midst. And so our goal in, in hosting this event is not to romanticize what we're doing, is not to sensationalize what we're doing, is to live into the realities that exist when various people get together to try to be the new family of Jesus. And what we're trying to do is be more than just a sanctified subway car where you get a, a group of anonymous, diverse people in close proximity together who want to just focus on their own respective stop their own respective destination. We're not trying to be a sanctified subway car. We're trying to be the new family of Jesus, birthed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when I, be, I want to begin this session here today by focusing particularly on one angle. There's many ways that we can begin a conversation on race. We can begin with theological analysis. We can begin with a historical reference. We can begin sociologically. We can begin narratively through our own stories, the sharing of our own respective stories. But I want to begin uh, our conference here by focusing more on a spirituality, a, a, a deep spirituality to live out the connection between the gospel and race. And we're going to hear all those other things, historical analysis and sociological realities and hear our narratives and such. But I want to begin with a particular perspective of spiritual formation. What, the, what kind of spiritual life is required? What kind of discipleship is required to have this conversation? What does a deeply formed life look like to navigate the often hostile waters 
of race in our country. How must our lives be formed to hold together grace and truth? How must our lives be formed to work for shalom and not contribute to the antagonisms that shape our society? How must our lives be built so that we can build communities marked by gospel identity and not by political and social idolatry? And so this is what I want to explore today in in Matthew 20. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to to Matthew 20. And on on the surface, when we look at this text, it might look like it doesn't have anything to do with the gospel and race. But I want to show how this passage situates us in reality for the sake of recapturing our identity and equipping us for ministry. And so Matthew 20, uh, it's the story of a mother, a well-meaning mother, coming up to Jesus with a particular request. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, the mother... Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And these are Jesus' words to her. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared for by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord, we open ourselves to you. Holy Spirit, Give us illumination and revelation. Open our hearts, open our lives, open our minds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The reality of racial hostility and racial inequality and racial divisiveness is very real in our country. Names such as Ferguson and Eric Garner and Trayvon Martin and Charlottesville have become household names and have reminded us that matters of race have perpetually been one of America's thorns in the flesh. And just take a look at your social media timeline on a given day. A day doesn't go by when folks are not vocalizing their rage, their puzzlement, their defensiveness over matters of race. And this turbulent discourse has often found its way into our families, into our dinner tables, into our local churches. And I found this to be a reality everywhere that I go. Now, I grew up in the East New York section of Brooklyn. 
I grew up on Pickin Avenue and Elton Street, the nice part of Brooklyn. For those of you who are familiar, you know that's a little bit of uh, comedy here, here. I grew up on Elton Street between Pitkin and Glenmore. And in the neighborhood I grew up for over 35 years, I saw lots of tensions. In the neighborhood I grew up in, there were predominantly Puerto Ricans, predominantly Dominicans, predominantly Caribbean Americans, predominantly African Americans who moved up from Atlanta, North Carolina and such. And there were ethnic tensions among us, but one of the consistent places of racial and ethnic tensions in my neighborhood were found in two places, the Chinese takeout spot and the dry cleaners. The Chinese takeout spot. The, the level of tension that exists and existed and to this day exists whenever someone went to order Chinese food, whenever someone went to the dry cleaners, there was a level of hostility that was in the air on a regular basis. And I vividly recall one experience as this, at the same time a glimmer of healing in one of the dry cleaner stores that I grew up around. As a teenager into my 20s, I would take monthly trips to the dry cleaners. I'd drop off whatever my mother wanted me to and to, to get my clothes to the person on the other side of the counter, there was often a couple of bulletproof walls, glass. There, there was a chute you have to put all the clothes through, this whole contraption, and then after a while, they finally get the clothes. And so that was our reality every single day, representing some kind of block, representing some kind of suspicion, representing some kind of mistrust and fear. And one day in my mid-20s, I walk into this dry cleaners and see that that partition was taken down. And I thought I was in the wrong place. I, I went back out, and I just looked up again, and I said, and I walked back in, and I said, for the first time, I've been over here for over 30 years, and so my mid-20s at that point, I said, why did you take down this partition? This is all we've known here. And this Korean man, it was under new ownership, this Korean man said these words to me, I never forgot it. He said, we want to build trust with our neighbors. And for the first time, I was able to shake hands in that space. And upon reflection of that moment, I couldn't help but think that something spiritual was taking place in this neighborhood, on the corner of Essex Street and Pitkin Avenue. And I would find out that these Korean owners were Christians, and something had compelled them to create a different way forward. And out of this simple act of bringing down this partition, a new community was being formed, not based on suspicion, not based on mistrust, not faced based on fear, but on hospitality and goodwill. And in that small dry cleaner space, I, I believe a metaphor of the gospel began to become clear as day. Because God is not just in the business of dry cleaning our souls. God is in the business of creating a new family, creating a new way of belonging. And one could argue that the primary fruit of the gospel is not going to heaven when you die. The primary fruit of the gospel is the miraculous new family that's created out of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so racial justice and racial reconciliation and such becomes one of the most urgent matters of our faith in public witness. And in this respect, the cross of Christ is not just a bridge that gets us to God. The cross is a sledgehammer 
that tears down walls that separate us. And so it took significant risk for that Korean family to tear down that partition. In a dangerous neighborhood like the one I'm from, they had to do the hard work of exposing themselves to perceived or possible threats. But in their mind, they saw the bigger picture, which which was the renewal of a neighborhood. And that moment stuck with me that to apply the gospel to race is inherently dangerous and requires risk and requires us to move out of our comfort zone. In short, it it requires a cruciformed way of life. And this is where I want to hang my thoughts as we look at this text today. Now, in our text, Matthew 20, Jesus is approached by a mother, a well-meaning mother, a helicopter mom, (laughs) an over-functioning mother. And she approaches Jesus because she believes he's headed for greatness. He's headed for the throne. He's headed for long-lasting power and authority. And she was absolutely right about this. And so she approaches Jesus, and Jesus, sensing she has a request, says, what is it you want? This is the million-dollar question. And she immediately responds, when you come into your kingdom, can my two boys sit on either side? Can one be on the right? Can one be on the left? And Jesus hears this request, and his words are this, you don't know what you're asking for. And he follows with the question, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And without hesitation, without reflection, without contemplation, without discussion, they say, yes, we can. Si se puede. Can you drink the cup? Yes, we can. We can absolutely do what you are asking us to do. Now, what's interesting is, I imagine they thought there was some kind of strong, distasteful drink that they had to swallow before receiving their promotion. But Jesus wasn't talking about a literal drink. He wasn't talking about a liquid concoction. He was referring to his death. He was referring to a way of life that would mark anyone who would choose to follow him. And so to drink the cup was his way of saying, can you take in, can you carry, can you swallow, can you open yourself up to the pressures, the pain, the misunderstandings, the suffering, the rejection, the death that's required for this role? And they said, yes, we can. Now, either they understood the question fully and courageously affirm this call, or they didn't understand the question and were blinded by their appeal for the position. And I believe it's the the latter rather than the former. They wanted the glory of leadership, being unaware of the cost associated with following Jesus, and Jesus clears it up right away. He says, those positions are not given by me. They're given by my Father who is in heaven. Moreover, you're going to have to drink the cup. It's like, I wonder, uh, you're not going to get it, but you're going to have to drink it. And I imagine at that point, they are a bit disoriented. And after this, the disciples hear about their request for power. They are upset that they asked. And then Jesus describes what it means to follow him. In short, he says, to follow him means you have to switch your role. To follow me, Jesus says, means that you're going to have to take the dangerous road of lowliness, the dangerous road of humility, that they want power to set everyone right. Jesus says, you can't follow me 
and follow the prevailing culture around you. Now, I want to lift this passage out of its context here and connect it to our reality. And I need to say that this passage troubles me deeply as I think about the current state of things in our churches, current state of things in our country. When it comes to the explosive, polarizing issue of race in this country, our public discourse is often fixed along these lines. We step into the conversation of race without truly knowing, truly reflecting, truly contemplating on what is truly expected of us. Which is why Jesus' word of warning and rebuke is something we all need to hear. We, we all want to be change agents. We all are tired of the racial challenges that exist in our country. But for those who want to follow Jesus in this way, for those of us who continue to follow Jesus in this way, the word Jesus says to us is essentially this, you don't know what you're asking for. That's the word of God to us today. You don't know what you're asking for. What Jesus does here is something we need to highlight for our own personal lives and for any church community trying to address these matters of race. You don't know what you're asking for. And Jesus is trying to get them to see that to follow him is first of all always an act of self-confrontation and crucifixion. You don't know what you're asking for. The world begins the conversation in one way, Jesus begins in another way. And Jesus here warns us and seeks to have us honestly face our motivations because you can build a platform on that which you hate, but you can't witness the kingdom of God with that spirit. You don't know what you're asking for. To go even further, he says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Jesus is saying, if you want to have impact in the world, you need to drink what I drink. And so to this end, I, I want to present to you five cups we need to drink. Five cups that if we're going to make any inroads in our local churches, which is my primary concern in this gathering, our local churches, what are the five cups, cruciform cups, that we need to drink? The first cup that I believe Jesus would present to us today is this. Can you drink the cup of self-examination. The cruciform cup of self-examination. Now, this is a cruciform cup because the issue of race often never begins here. It usually begins by locating the problem out there without any notion of personal confrontation. But to follow Jesus requires us to examine the ways we've been shaped, to name the ways we've been shaped, to examine the ways we've been complicit in the ongoing realities and problem of racial hostility and racial oppression in our midst. The world marked by sin is exclusively other-focused. When sin enters into the world, the, the, the first two manifestations of sin is shame and blame. Shame they hide, and then the woman you gave me, the serpent, shame and blame. And it's located out here. 
But to follow Jesus in this world requires us to drink a cup of self-examination. This is why prayer can never be divorced from any work of racial justice. This is why I don't trust people who don't have a life with God in prayer to work for racial justice because you will always locate it out here without seeing the work that God wants to do in here. And so unless the church consistently leads people to the wilderness of prayer and silence and repentance and reflection to confront our own demons, we will project our demons out into the world not knowing that those demons are a reflection of our own selves. Can you drink the cup of self-examination? Self-examination requires us to name our complicity and our complacency. Self-examination requires us to locate whether we are being formed by the cruciform kingdom of God perspective or whether we're taking our talking points from the political right or left. Self-examination requires us to locate the places that we are afraid to speak because of how we will be perceived. Self-examination requires us to name the ways we are contributing to the antagonisms of the world. Self-examination requires us to confront our own pride, our own idols. That before we can work for unity, we have to do the hard work of unmasking our own duplicity. Self-examination. Which is why we need the heroes like Howard Thurman. The heroes of Thomas Merton, Joan Chittister, the people who, who lead us into the desert of silence and solitude and reflection and repentance, the cup of self-examination. That's the first cup to drink. The second cup to drink, I believe Jesus would ask us today, is can you drink the cup of cruciform listening? The cup of listening, cruciform listening. One of the biggest tasks we have as a church is to be deeply present to one another, to do the deep work of listening. And to some degree, I can admit, maybe you can admit, that this remains virtually impossible for a number of reasons. That we believe listening means agreement. We, we, we prefer to be right than to open our mind to different perspectives. We carry deep anxiety about negotiating our differences. We reduce people to what, in our opinion, is their worst belief, so we can't even listen. We are afraid of change. And when I look at my own life, I could see these perspectives flowing through me, that listening is hard, and yet I have to do the painful task of cruciform listening. Now, at New Life, we talk about cruciform listening in the sense of incarnation. That to, to listen in this way requires us to follow the God of the incarnation. And listening requires us to, to leave our world, what we are familiar with, to risk, to step out, especially in regards to race and matters like this. To enter into the world of someone else through humble, open, curious listening and to allow ourselves to be formed by another. And, and so Jesus' incarnation doesn't just, just describe God coming to earth. It's actually a model of ministry for us, stepping into the space of someone else. And while I say this, I need to nuance this a little bit. 
Because while we are all called to listen to one another in the bond of peace, the ones who need to listen first and more often are the ones who have enjoyed the privileges of social power. This is a deeply Christ-centered way of being in the world. The one who has power or who has benefited from the way power has been socially arranged are the ones who are to be called upon to listen first and foremost. This is why men need to listen first and foremost to women. Say amen, somebody. I mean, talk to me. Why? Because the way that power has been socially arranged throughout history has been one marked by patriarchy. Therefore, men are to lead the way in listening to women. This is why wealthy, upwardly mobile men and women are to lead the way in listening first and foremost to the poor and to working class people. Because they, those who have power, those who have wealth, have received a particular ordering of life that often distances people who are on the low end of that spectrum. This is why the North American church must listen to the church in the global south. First and foremost. Because the way the church has been shaped has been dominated by a North American Eurocentric way of being in the world. Listen first, and more often it is why our white brothers and sisters need to listen first and foremost to the stories and experiences of people of color listening more often because the social construct of race has created a world that, broadly speaking, has normalized and rendered superior white people. And this reality doesn't mean that people of color do not listen to white people. Of course we do. But proportion needs to be considered. And time needs to be considered. This is the way of the cross. A letting go of power. An upside-down kingdom. Can you drink the cup of crucified, a cruciform listening? Third cup is, can you drink the cup of honestly facing racial history? Can you drink the cup, in short, of remembering? That you can't understand the current reality and experience of racial hostility, especially in the U.S., without also acknowledging the history of racial oppression experienced by Native Americans Slavery experienced by African Americans. We can't talk about it without understanding the Chinese Exclusion Act, without understanding Japanese internment camps. That we can't understand where we are today without really understanding how in the world we got here yesterday. And as a pastor of a very diverse church, I'm aware of the racial prejudice and racism that exists all over the world. Every country has their own manifestation of this here. But I want to focus on where we live. This is where we're here. We're here. I want to focus here. Because the divisiveness that we experience is the fruit of centuries of racial oppression. The fruit of centuries of racial hostility. And people will often look to the success of a few individual minorities as proof that racial oppression has been eradicated. Say, look at Oprah. (laughs) 
Look at LeBron. You had a black president. What else do you want? But as James Baldwin has said, the inequalities suffered by the many are in no way justified by the rise of the few. That the residue of racial inequality and hostility remains. And on a personal level, we can't understand the reality of life without looking at our own past. The same principle applies to our national reality. Now, at New Life, we have a spiritual formation tool called the genogram. And essentially, the genogram comes out of family systems theory is a way of examining and honestly facing the ways that we have been personally shaped by our families of origin. And it's a tool that helps us look at the positive legacies and the negative legacies that have been handed down. And the principle of the genogram very simply is this, that unless we look back to see the ways that we have been improperly formed, we will continue to live that pattern out one generation to the next. And this principle is not just applicable for our homes and our personal lives, it's applicable to our churches and to our country as a whole. That unless we critically examine how we've been improperly formed as a church, improperly formed as a nation, we will live this reality Year after year after year. And so in bringing up history, our own family histories, when we, when we do our genogram and talk about our own family histories, the goal is not to hate your, your parents. The goal is to understand your parents better and to reject the ways that we have been improperly formed. And when we do a genogram looking at our nation and looking at the history of our church, the goal is not to hate this country. The goal is not to hate the church, but it is to mark the ways that we have been improperly formed. And to say, this way no longer works. And I refuse to perpetuate this from one generation to the next. And our refusal to look honestly at the dark history of our country often reveals an idolatry of our hearts. If I could name the one script that's been handed down generation after generation when you look at the genogram of the United States... Brian Stevenson says it this way. He, he, he would call the one script that we have the narrative of racial difference as the enduring myth that shapes much of our personal and collective consciousness. And he says these words. He says, the great evil of American slavery was not involuntary servitude or forced labor. He says, to me, the great evil of slavery was the narrative of racial difference, the ideology of white supremacy that created that we created to make ourselves feel comfortable with enslaving people who are black. We never addressed that legacy. And so the narrative of racial difference is more than just recognizing differences within us. The problem with the narrative of racial difference is the differences are assigned value and worth. And so as a result, we are to drink the cup of our history. Drink the cup. This is why every person who seeks to work for justice needs to become a historian. This is why I invited Mark Charles, who's going to speak after me, to to give us a lesson on history. Because unless we are looking back, we will perpetuate the ways that we have been formed. Fourth cup. Can you drink the cup of enemy love? He said, Rich, I like the first three. Later for that one there. (laughs) Can you drink the cup of enemy love? I and shaped in a world that is tit-for-tat, a counter-punching world. 
I live, we live in a counterpunching world. It reminded me of my, my son Nathan. I have a four-year-old son Nathan who was at some indoor play area and he forgot his train one day, his little train. He loves train tracks and he's playing on the train. He forgot his train. There was no train there. I said, son, he was crying. I said, son, next time we go to this place, we'll bring a couple of trains. Next day, he, he brought his train. And he's playing with the train and another little boy came up to him. There was only one train, my son's train. And little boy wanted that train. And so I'm in the back just staring. Just lay, lay, I know they're four, but I'm already, I'm already looking. I'm what's going on here. And, and this little boy tries to snatch the train. And Nathan steps away, snatches it back. The kid reaches again. Nathan runs away from this kid. Now he's cornered. And this little kid, bigger than he was, hits Nathan. And I'm looking at the parent, like, what y'all want to do? What's going on? Well, what do you want to do? <laughs> and Nathan, in a second, takes his train and bops the kid upside the head. And I said to myself, that's my son. That's my son. That's my son. That's my boy. <laughs> and I thought, I live, we live in a counterpunching world in which... You hit me, I'm hitting you back. And yet, to drink this cup requires us to do something much different. We, we, we are called to love. Now, I'm not talking about love meaning sentimentality. I'm not talking about love as being nice. Nice is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's not on the list. I'm talking about a strong kind of love. I'm talking about a kind of enemy love that's open to the ways of the Spirit flowing through us, witnessing to the just and forgiving ways of the kingdom. That to work for justice and to be forgiving are not mutually exclusive, they're not contradictory. That we, can, we are called to work to make things right in our exterior world, external world, without being enslaved by our own hatred in our interior world. Can you drink the cup of enemy love? This is why we need a community. This is why we need prayer. This is why we need, during the season of Lent, repentance. Because it's the cup that few of us want to drink. It's a cup I often don't want to drink. And yet, can you drink the cup of enemy love? Last cup. Can you drink the cup of humility? That any attempt to form communities marked by racial wholeness, marked by racial justice, marked by reconciliation, requires us to have an upside-down way of being in the world. Requires a spirit of humility, a spirit of being teachable, spirit of receiving open to correction, a willingness to have our lives marked by the words Jesus speaks in this passage. And what's fascinating about this passage is this contrast that's made. I want you to see very quickly, right after this passage here, in Matthew 20, James and John and their mother come to Jesus asking, can my sons sit at your right hand and your left? And right after this story, we find another story of another two men. But these two men are blind. And Jesus asks them the same question 
He asked them, what do you want? What do you want me to do? And you know what the blind men said? The disciples wanted to sit. The blind men wanted to see. Same question, what do you want? They say, we want to see. We, we don't see correctly. Our vision is all messed up. And Jesus lays his hands on, he says he has compassion on them, he touches their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. One wanted to sit, the other wanted to see. And to drink the cup of cruciform humility means, I don't always see right. I don't always see straight. I don't even see anything. And yet Jesus Ask us today, can you drink the cup of humility, the cup that says, I don't have all the answers. I don't see the way you want me to see. And it is when we open ourselves up to the power of God in this way, Jesus has compassion. He touches our eyes and we receive science. Here's my question for you as we close this session here. Which cup for you today is Jesus calling you and asking you to drink? Which is the one? All of us, all of yes, all of us, all of them. But what's the cup? For some of us, we've located everything out here. We've never looked in here. For those of us, we've done a lot of talking. We haven't done a lot of listening. For those of us, we haven't even looked at history or considered the realities of this, the racial oppression that has marked our country from its very inception. For some of us, we're not thinking at all about enemy love or humility. What's the cup you need to drink? And so what I want to do is I want to give us about five minutes, three, four minutes or so, to reflect. One of our values at New Life is we are deeply shaped by the monastic tradition, a tradition that's marked by silence and solitude and reflection and repentance. And I want to give us a moment to be open to the Spirit of God. And whether you close your eyes and you're just still and allowing the spirit to zero in in your life or whether you write down something in your booklet there, what's the cup? What's the invitation from Jesus to you as we start this conference? What's Jesus calling you to do as you lead your respective communities? What's the cup he's calling you to drink? Let's take a couple of minutes presence of God and I'll pray for us in a good three, four minutes and then we'll move on. But let yourself respond at this moment to how the Spirit is moving. Lord Jesus, in the ways that you spoke to James and John and their mother, you speak to us this day offering us a sobering warning that to choose to follow you is to follow in the cruciform way. And Lord, we can't do it in our own strength. We need the empowerment of your spirit. Lord, lead us in the way we should go. And may throughout the course of this next day and a half, May you encounter us, shape us, form us, renew us, confront us, heal us, empower us to do the work you've called us to do. We pray these things 
in the name of Jesus. Amen.